0: Hi, and thank you for having me. Uh, my name is Michelle Voss, and I'm going to be talking about exercise effects on the brain and cognition in healthy aging and dementia populations. I'm an assistant professor in the Health Brain and Cognition Lab, and I'm in the Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences here at the University of Iowa and part of the Neuroscience Training Program in the Aging Mind and Brain Initiative. So I do not have any disclosures. So overall, uh, in this talk I'll review current findings about how exercise affects the brain and cognition in aging populations. We'll start out by describing a little bit about uh, what happens with aging in terms of cognitive decline and uh, decline in brain structure. Then I'll introduce the idea that exercise is a potent stimulus for neuroplasticity. And I'll talk a little bit about the terms of physical activity, exercise, and fitness. Following that, go into some of the data that exists on the effects of exercise and healthy aging and also in uh, affecting the risk for dementia. So to start out with, this is a common slide that people uh, like to present, which nicely summarizes some of the cognitive decline that occurs for most people as they get older. So we have on the x-axis here, going from age 20 to age 80. And then here we have a normative score of performance on different cognitive abilities. And again, this is depicting the idea that most people experience some cognitive decline in the number of abilities as they get older. And this is just a subset of abilities that are commonly measured in a laboratory. This would be, for example, speed of processing, The ability to quickly and accurately respond to stimuli in the environment, and we measure that often on a computer screen, but this could also be a pedestrian walking across the street. Working memory, the ability to hold multiple items in your head at once. If I asked you to calculate a 15% tip on a bill that was $31.50 and do that quickly, you have to keep multiple things in your head at once and work on them. And that would be the idea of working memory that we measure in the lab. Long-term memory, uh, the ability to now hold information for longer periods of time, talking more about hours, days, and years. So if you met somebody at a party and you see them in a different context, can you remember their name and what they told you they did for a living? These are all things that tend to decline with age, shown here is sort of a linear decline and typically you start to see below average performance right around age 60, going into the 90s. Something that stays relatively stable are things like world knowledge, often measured with vocabulary tests. Now, that was the the, the, the more depressing part of the story, but the more optimistic part of normal cognitive aging is the fact that there is a lot of variability in individual differences. So. Progressive age-related cognitive decline is not necessarily inevitable uh, to such a great extent. So this is an example of speed of processing, one of the cognitive abilities we saw on the previous slide. And now this is showing you individuals and the correlation of chronological age and performance. Again, individuals from age 20 to 80. And you can see while there is a negative correlation, the older people are, the worse they tend to do the slower they are. There's a lot of variability, and some older adults are very similar to 20-year-olds. Okay? But other older adults experience what we would anticipate to be more decline, even though we don't have data from this person at age 20, we would anticipate that they started somewhere over here. So there's a lot of variability. Not every everyone does not experience cognitive aging in the same way. And we can see this from longitudinal data as well. This is again, perceptual speed and actually use very similar measures in these studies. This is from a very large study that followed people over about five years. And again, they're measuring performance on the y-axis. And now we have age from about 65 to 95. And the lines now represent a given person that has been followed, again, about five years in the sample, but the number of follow-ups for each person varied. And what you wanna be able to pick out here is that there is, again, variability. Some people maintain their performance relatively stable. Other people decline a little bit. Other people show a much more marked decline. So we have cross-sectional data and we have longitudinal data, both supporting the idea that there is variability across individuals and the extent to which they experience cognitive decline. Now one important thing that we need to think about when we're thinking about things like cognitive impairment and dementia is the idea of well, what, what, what amount of decline is something we should worry about in terms of predicting dementia or predicting decline that is is, is more than uh, normal. So you might look at this type of decline and ask, ask yourself, well, is that something we should be worried about? Has this person now uh, developed dementia? And this is where terms like mild cognitive impairment become important, for helping us operationalize what it means to start to have cognitive decline that's greater than expected, or greater than what we would expect to be uh, in the normal range for someone's age and education. And the definition of mild cognitive impairment has evolved in different ways, but has also stayed stable in other ways. These are core characteristics of what we can think about uh, in terms of how we think about what mild cognitive impairment is. They reflect the idea that MCI is a syndrome defined as subjective or objective uh, decline in cognitive function that's greater than expected for someone's age and education, okay? And so the key bullet points for um, defining what mild cognitive impairment is uh, include self-reported or informant-reported cognitive complaint. So I'm a person that's experiencing cognitive decline relative to my own baseline that I know of, or somebody in my family or someone that I know closely has um, detected that I might be experiencing some cognitive decline. Measured, objectively measured cognitive impairment. So cognitive impairment that has been, cognitive abilities that have been measured in the laboratory and have been measured to be um, some number of standard deviations below the average compared to age and education matched individuals. But importantly, uh, in general, there's preserved cognitive functioning and the, the person does not show evidence that they meet the criteria for dementia. Now again, the motivation for having a sort of an operational definition of, of mild cognitive decline or um, cognitive impairment is to be able to identify people that might be starting to experience cognitive decline that is greater than normal, and so that we might be able to identify whether they're at greater risk for developing clinical dementia. And with that spirit, there have been a lot of different strategies for trying to to expand these core characteristics to develop ways to identify uh, or predict what type of dementia one is most at risk for. And this is where you start to see things where other factors get taken into consideration, often biological or biomarkers, in addition to some of the cognitive measures, and those are taken into consideration in different ways to try to predict um, the likelihood of different types of dementias. So here is one of the, 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 the later diagnostic criteria where you can take the core characteristics and then with more information try to specify which type of dementia one might be most at risk for. Again, the goal for having a operational definition of what mild cognitive impairment uh, looks like is to identify those that are at the highest risk for developing dementia. And with that early detection, we would be able to identify individuals that should benefit most or should benefit from treatment uh, to prevent converting into dementia. So like I said, we have these common core characteristics that uh, help us operationalize what mild cognitive impairment is. And then we have um, different criteria that have been developed to try to uh, take additional information, often from biomarkers, uh, that help us predict what types of dementia somebody might be at most risk for. And this type of information such as biomarkers can also be visualized like this. Here we have biomarker magnitude from normal to abnormal, and we have different biomarkers uh, shown here. And we have going from cognitively normal to MCI to uh, the dementia stage. And so what's shown here is we can put a reference at memory, which is a cognitive ability, what we've talked about so far, Okay, so cognitive abilities is measured in the laboratory. As we're cognitively normal, we do have some decline that is associated with normal aging. But then when we have decline that starts to reach more and more uh, abnormal levels, we start to say that this decline is in the range of mild cognitive impairment. So beyond what we would say is normal for someone's age and gender and education. Okay, so then once that decline becomes more and more abnormal. They have reached more of a clinical stage of dementia. But what can we look earlier on? And here we have other things like brain structure, which can be measured by MRI. So this is an example MRI image. And one region that has become, uh, has, has gotten a lot of attention as part of this curve, and while their brain structure can help us predict who is the most at risk for mild cognitive impairment and dementia, Is the region called the hippocampus and that's shown in green here. It's in the middle of the brain if you put your fingers on your ears and then you kept moving them towards each other until they touched, they would meet at the hippocampus. Okay, so it's a region thought to be very important for the formation of new memories and the shrinkage of this region over time is thought to be a predictor of one's risk for mild cognitive impairment and dementia, particularly for dementia of Alzheimer's type. Now, earlier on, there are other ways that we might be able to get access to biomarkers that help us predict whether someone's at risk for MCI and dementia. Um, The difference uh, between these, so this is tau and amyloid burden, these can be measured uh, with CSF, getting CSF samples from the spine, uh, or they can be measured with other more invasive imaging techniques, and so MRI has A little bit of of an advantage in, in that it is a little bit less invasive than some of these other techniques to measure these other biomarkers and most of the evidence that i'll be talking about in terms of the protective nature of exercise and physical activity actually does use mri as a measure of brain structure and function so here we have again this is a hypothetical picture of what some of these biomarkers might look like as uh, one progresses from cognitively normal to MCI to dementia. Okay. But just like cognition, it's important to remember that there are a lot of individual differences in the effects of aging on the brain. So if we look at these MRI images again, um, this is another type of way to look at an MRI. Okay, So this is a side view of the brain. This is another side view. And this is if you were looking from the top of your head down onto the brain. And you might ask yourself, can you tell which ones of these individuals is young, college-age adult, or which one is an older adult, say in their 60s to 80s? Now, just to orient you, the gray color on these images is gray matter, and that's where the cell bodies of neurons or brain cells are. And then the brighter uh, part of these images is what we would call white matter, and that's the connective tissue that connects different parts of the brain. And the black areas are fluid, so it's cerebrospinal fluid. And typically, for example, in this image, this is where um, tissue used to be, but it has shrunken and it has it has deteriorated away. Uh, and these are called ventricles. You want to see these to be quite small. and you want to see as much tissue as you can. Okay, the larger the ventricles get, and the larger there's uh, there are gaps between the tissue, the more we can likely assume that shrinkage has happened. Okay, so if we're looking at these three individuals, we might try to guess that this is the young adult, and this is a young adult, and this is an older adult based on the amount of shrinkage that's happened. But if we if we do look and see who the actual identities of these individuals, uh, we would see that these two are in fact both older adults and they're actually the both gender, the, they're both the same gender and same age. There can be marked variability in the extent to which aging affects brain structure. Okay. Now so together, the evidence that I showed you from measuring cognitive abilities in the laboratory, of different peoples at different ages and looking at brain structure There's a lot of variability in how one experiences aging, both in their cognitive function and their brain structure. And so this leads to the question, what are the factors that help us explain this variation? How do we get to be this person, or how do we get to be that person that had just as good of speed of processing as the young adult? What are those factors? So this is a figure uh, that summarizes some of the data in this area looking at all of the protective factors that we might think about or some of the, at least a subset of the protective factors that we could think about uh, in regards to successful aging. So this can range all the way from the basics of our genetics to the healthiness of our heart, the healthiness of our brain, and then our social environment, and then our perceptions and our thoughts. Uh, along this dimension, we have different things that can either pull us towards more successful aging, such as a protective genetic profile. We might have protective um, lifestyle habits that help enhance heart health. And similarly, we might have protective lifestyle habits that increase the plasticity of the brain and the healthiness of the brain as we get older. And importantly, uh, these two aspects might be linked. And indeed, there's a lot of evidence to show that a healthy heart is related to a healthy brain. Now, cognitive training and being active in the social environment and having, in general, a positive emotional bias, these are all things that tend to lead or be related to successful aging. And then on the other side, we have uh, things that might be more likely to lead to dementia and decline. Now, the focus of this talk is to now go forward and talk a little bit about the evidence here. So what is the evidence that shows us that if we have greater uh, physical activity levels and greater cardiovascular fitness, which is one indicator of the healthiness of our of our vascular function, how is that related to the function of our brain and cognition as we get older? So With that, I want to introduce a little bit about the terms of exercise and introduce the idea that exercise is a potent stimulus for neuroplasticity, as this has been shown in animal findings. And then we'll move on uh, to some of the literature that is focused on on humans. So importantly, studies have consistently shown that physical activity is a powerful stimulus of brain plasticity, has come from both animal models and highly uh, controlled experiments and from studies with human populations that have done uh, everything from perspective studies to cross-sectional analyses to randomized controlled trials, which I'll talk about in a little bit. But before we get into that, I wanna define a little bit more about what we're talking about when we're talking about physical activity and exercise. And I think it's important to remember that These are different constructs so three terms that are related that we're going to talk about here are physical activity exercise and fitness In this visual here we have a range of physical activity behaviors so when we're talking about physical activity talking about any bodily movement that's created by your skeletal muscles that's increasing energy expenditure greater than rest we can quantify that with what's called a MET or metabolic equivalent of task okay And a metabolic equivalent of task, or a MET of 1, is essentially the amount of energy that you're expending at rest, or when you're sitting. And then anything above 1 is the proportion of energy you're expending greater than rest. METs uh, a little bit over 1 to 3 are generally in the range of light intensity activities. And then we can become more moderately active or moderately intense uh, in our activities. And this would be like a brisk walk where you're lightly sweating and your heart is beating. You feel like you're getting a good workout. And then a vigorous intensity would be more along the lines of, you know, your, your heart is pumping really hard and you're, you're sweating a lot. And you feel like you couldn't keep it up for very long. Now, when we have these different intensity levels, uh, these percentage of times refer to the uh, typical amounts of time that people spend in these different categories throughout their day. And as you could imagine, we spend most of our day in the light intensity activity. So this would be walking to the grocery store, walking to work, anything where we're, you know, moving, but we're not feeling like we're breaking a sweat. Now, we spend much less time in this moderate and vigorous zone, but they have important con- the amount of time we spend in these zones does have important consequences for our physical health and mental health. Okay, so we can break down these different activity levels into what we might call exercise or NEAT. Exercise is anything that's physical activity that's planned and structured for the purposes of improving your fitness, whereas NEAT is all of the energy expenditure that you have outside of that planned activity. So, again, uh, standing up at work or walking to the grocery, walking your dog, These might be things that are just part of your daily activities. So on the other side, we have sedentary behaviors, which are any wakeful behaviors where you're not expending any energy greater than sort of a resting state. So these examples of this would be sitting or reclining. And people tend to spend quite a bit of time in the the sedentary category throughout the day. Now there is an emerging area of research that links sedentary behaviors with health outcomes. Uh, physical and mental. What we're going to talk about mostly today is again uh, the idea of physical activity. So importantly overall physical activity is a behavior and a way to measure how active people are. Now unlike unlike physical activity which is a behavior there's another term that gets used in this literature which is uh, cardiorespiratory fitness. Now, cardiorespiratory fitness is often uh, measured as VO2 max, and this is often an attribute of an active person, but not always. There is a large genetic uh, contribution to someone's aerobic fitness levels or cardiovascular fitness levels, and what this measures is it measures basically the amount of oxygen someone can take in and use to create energy. So you can measure it uh, with a setup like this when somebody is walking on a treadmill and they're hooked up to... A mask that's uh, taking in samples of air, and it's basically able to measure the amount of oxygen that's getting taken in and what's the composition of the air that's getting breathed out. And with that and with increasing uh, the intensity of the exercise until someone can go no longer, you can start to get a sense at which point the body can no longer create more energy. Okay, so the important take-home point here is that Cardiorespiratory fitness is a physiological attribute of our ability uh, to to do physical work um, with our aerobic system, whereas physical activity is a behavior, and it represents how much we are active uh, more and, and not sitting as much during the day. So this leads us to talking about how to apply these concepts when we're thinking about how physical activity behavior, or fitness that we could achieve through activity levels are related to protection of the aging mind and brain. Now, I'll start out with just some of the animal work that has started to show some of the the real basic molecular components of how we think exercise is protective. And from this work, many of the benefits of exercise in the brain and cognition are thought to be mediated by what we would call Uh, growth factors, and and modulatory neurotransmitters. So two examples, uh, one growth factor uh, that's thought to be very important in the relationship between exercise and brain health is brain-derived neurotrophic factor, often uh, abbreviated as BDNF, and what's getting shown here is the level of BDNF expression in the brain following either seven days of exercise or seven days of being sedentary and this is an animal model so these uh, the animals in the exercise group had access to a uh, running wheel for seven days and these um, animals did not and you can see there's a big difference between the amount of bdnf expression that occurs in different regions of the hippocampus again port, an area important for memory Uh, for the exercise compared to the sedentary group. And this was also shown uh, with the expression of protein after five days of access to a wheel versus the sedentary group. Now, this was one of the first set of studies, this Nieper et al. uh, set of studies was one of the first to highlight this idea that exercise might be beneficial for regions involved in things other than motor control or motor skill acquisition and rather that exercise might actually be protective for areas of the brain that are associated with things like memory. And knowing what we know about how aging aging affects the hippocampus, this also highlighted the possibility that exercise could be neuroprotective for the aging hippocampus. Now, what's important about this result um, is one, that BDNF is thought to be sort of a super chemical for the brain or a super molecule. It's uh, known to enhance uh, the brain's ability to have neuroplasticity or change in response to experience. It increases the brain's ability to uh, be resilient to injury and to recover after injury. Also important about this result is it was one of the first to really highlight the idea that um, exercise could be protective for brain regions that are involved in higher level cognitive function, like memory. Before, studies had mainly shown the ability of exercise to improve function of brain regions involved with uh, motor function or motor skill acquisition, which might be directly related to its use. However, here we have the effects of exercise being shown uh, on a a very important protective factor in the brain and an area involved in, in memory. So this highlighted this in conjunction with the idea that we know aging leads to a shrinkage or damage of this region and aging leads to a a reduction in BDNF in the brain, highlights the idea that exercise could be protective for the brain in aging. I just want to highlight one neurotransmitter that has a lot of support behind it in terms of the positive benefits of exercise on the brain, and that is dopamine. And there are theories that suggest that dopamine and its decline in the brain uh, as a neurotransmitter is, is very relevant to the cognitive decline that we see with aging. And then there are, in contrast, a lot of studies that support the idea that exercise increases the uh, expression of dopamine and the number of dopamine receptors in the brain. This is one example of what happens during exercise. So this is before exercise, during 20 minutes, and then following 20 minutes of exercise. And this is the percentage levels of dopamine as measured from microdialysis in the striatum, which is a region involved in motor control, but also executive function. And so what's getting shown here is that uh, both during and immediately after exercise, dopamine is increased in the striatum. And then over time, what we would see and what studies support is the idea that the brain adapts and overall with chronic training, there's increases in dopamine expression in not only the striatum, but also other regions like the hippocampus that we've talked about and the prefrontal cortex, which is in the front of the brain and highly involved in our ability to do uh, executive functions or things like um, working memory. Now, in addition to uh, the effects of exercise on growth factors and neurotransmitters, exercise has also been shown to increase the production of new neurons in the hippocampus In young and older adults or animals. The hippocampus is one of the only regions in the brain um, where new neurons or new brain cells can be generated continuously. Now the rate of new neuron production does decline with age, however there are different lifestyle factors that affect that rate of decline and exercise has been shown to be one of those and it's been highly replicated and this is just one example of those findings from Van Praag et al in 2005. This is young sedentary runners compared to young runners and this is the number of new neurons after 45 days of access to a running wheel and you can see that the runners have increased uh, neurogenesis or the production of new neurons in the hippocampus and they also looked at this in older animals and while the increase uh, compared to sedentary was reduced there was still a reliable increase in the older runners and the, the rate of neurogenesis. This is evidence that while the, the rate of neurogenesis declines with age, uh, exercise is a protective factor that might help uh, keep the rate of neurogenesis uh, as high as it could be for any given age. So a lot of what I've reviewed so far has been with animal models in terms of how we know that exercise could be protective for the brain as we get older. Now I'm going to move to uh, some of the work that has been done with humans in this area to see how exercise might affect uh, cognition on the brain in both healthy aging and dementia populations. So what we're seeing here is a meta-analysis by Kokelman-Kramer done in 2003. And the goal here is to look at and compare the magnitude of improvements in cognitive performance for those older adults that were trained with aerobic exercise or resistance exercise or some combination of the two in comparison to an active control. And the active control would often take the form of light stretching or some sort of social interaction that helps control for the fact that people are um, becoming more engaged with Uh, a study and getting more attention through the context of a study. And so we know that the effects are just not from getting more attention uh, social and social interaction, but they're actually from the exercise training. And so what's important here is that uh, the improvements seen from exercise training are broad, so they cross uh, different cognitive abilities, so executive, controlled, spatial, and speed of processing but also that the effects tend to be the largest in an executive function. Now, executive function includes uh, working memory, which we've talked about, and also includes things like task switching, switching back and forth between different tasks, and inhibition. So it's also something that, just like uh, as we talked about with working memory, tends to decline with age. So a take-home message of this meta-analysis was the idea that there seems to be broad benefits for exercise training, and they tend to be uh, strong in areas of cognitive abilities that tend to show decline with aging. In terms of the mechanisms for how these effects might occur, uh, a lot of studies have tried to use MRI to look at both brain structure and function to understand uh, the links between physical activity and and fitness and how the brain is actually uh, able to perform better following exposure either to activity or uh, for those that have greater fitness levels. And one thing that has been replicated uh, several times over is the idea that exercise seems to have a positive effect on the on the prefrontal cortex. And this is one example of activation studies. So here uh, we have studies that have tried to have people perform a cognitive task that demands executive functions uh, in the context of an MRI scanner and then we look to see which brain regions are involved in performing those cognitive processes, and then whether there's any variation across people and how different brain regions are used or how much they're used, and whether that helps us understand how they're performing better. So this uh, Cochol Medell study in 2004 was an example of this where they compared higher fit to lower fit older adults, and they found that higher fit older adults had greater activation in the prefrontal cortex and the parietal cortex while they were completing a task that had executive function demands. So the implication of findings like this is the idea that older adults that have greater fitness levels are better able to uh, utilize resources in the prefrontal and parietal cortices to efficiently perform tasks of executive function. Now, studies have also looked at brain volume and there's a number of studies that have shown uh, either associations or changes in brain volume as associated with uh, physical activity or fitness. So this is an example from the Weinstein et al study and the regions in red are those where individuals with greater cardiorespiratory fitness had greater uh, gray matter volume in the prefrontal cortex. And this is another example of a finding like that and this is the Gordon et al uh, study in 2008 and the regions in orange here are those that had uh, regions that were greater in gray matter volume for those with higher fitness levels, those older adults. And again, these are both findings that have um, shown these results after covarying out age and education and gender. And then finally, this is an example of results where uh, they're looking at increases or changes in brain volume as a function of exercise training. And here we have areas in blue are gray matter areas that showed increases in brain volume as a function of exercise training. Uh, In this case, exercise training was walking three times a week for six months. And the area in orange or yellow here is an area of white matter, again, the connective tissue in the brain that showed increased volume following six months of training for a walking group compared to a stretching and toning group. The significance of these findings, again, is the idea that the prefrontal cortex, uh, shown here uh, in in the areas in blue and here in the areas in red, um, the prefrontal cortex is, is thought to be very important for how our brain is able to complete tasks of executive function. And so the idea that Greater physical activity or greater fitness could be related to greater volume in this area of the brain. That might help us understand a little bit of why we have uh, the associations between physical activity and fitness and cognitive functions like executive function. Now, in addition to the prefrontal cortex, again, another region that is very responsive to exercise and also is is very important in, in the context of aging and dementia is the hippocampus. And this is just to illustrate uh, the hippocampus again, its location and the impact that uh, Alzheimer's disease has on this region. So this is a healthy person and this is the hippocampus of a healthy individual. Again, it's in the the middle of the brain. We call the medial temporal lobe. And then we have an Alzheimer's patient where there's marked atrophy of this region. And a study that uh, uh, that we did recently and we showed that a similar amount of of walking that I just talked about, three times a a week, uh, and this time for one year, that this amount of walking was able to increase the size of the hippocampus uh, by about one to two percent. And so what we have here is the left hippocampus and the right hippocampus. This is the walking group and this is the stretching and toning group. Again, this is very light stretching and very light toning. So it was just meant to be an active control. And the stretching group is is showing a decline in hippocampal volume that's similar to what we would expect with normal aging, whereas the walking group is showing the reverse of that. They're actually showing increased amounts of volume in this area. So this has a lot of significance because of the idea, again, that shrinkage of this brain region, while it does typically happen with normal aging and an accelerated extent, Uh, when someone is progressing towards MCI and dementia, the shrinkage might be reversible with a lifestyle factor that's as simple as going for a walk three times a week. Now, what's an interesting finding as well is that the increases in hippocampal volume were associated with how much someone's cardiorespiratory fitness increased from the intervention. So here now on the x-axis, we have change in hippocampal volume. Okay, so for left and right hippocampus, and change in VO2 max, which is that measure of cardiorespiratory fitness that we talked about. So what we're seeing here is that the people that had the most increase in volume in the walking group, this is only in the walking group, the people that had the most increase in volume are also the people that had the most change in their cardiorespiratory fitness. So this suggests some sort of dose-response relationship between the greater in, a greater increase in fitness level and how it's related to... Uh, a greater increase in the in the volume of this, of this brain structure. Now we've also studied the effects of improving fitness on white matter integrity. So in this same study that I told you about for, where for one year participants either walked three times a week or they did stretching and toning for three times a week, we measured uh, white matter integrity, which is again, white matter is the connective tissue in the brain. And we can measure it in different lobes of the brain, uh, We do that because different lobes have different sensitivities to to the effects of aging. Two lobes of the brain that have a lot of detrimental effects or show a lot of decline with aging are the prefrontal, shown here, again in the front of the brain, and then the temporal cortex. And what we did here is we measured the white matter integrity in these different lobes, and we measured that with what's called fractional anisotropy. And this is a measure of white matter integrity that tells us a little bit about, well, the integrity of of the fibers that are making up this connective tissue. So this is just a visual demonstration to show that increasing amounts or greater amounts of FA is related, related to stronger fiber organization or greater white matter integrity. So what we showed... In this study, published in 2013, again, it's it's the same individuals as in the, in the hippocampus finding that I showed you, is that um, the amount of white matter increase in these different lobes was related to the amount of fitness change that people showed. So, and this happened differentially for different lobes of the brain. So in the occipital lobe, there was some increase in white matter uh, integrity that was related to the increases in fitness. But... Uh, when we look at statistically uh, what were the most robust effects it was temporal lobe and the frontal lobe where the strongest relationship occurred between increases in white matter and increases in fitness level in the walking group compared to the stretching group so again this sort of starts to um, hint at the idea that uh, cardiorespiratory fitness levels uh, are one important factor and the extent to which the brain is is showing responsiveness from the physical activity behaviors. Now, in contrast to measuring uh, the functional activation in the brain in response to different task demands, or the brain structure of the brain as ways to measure uh, the brain with aging, there's another way that you can measure functional brain integrity, and that is with brain networks. And these are thought to also serve as an important biomarkers of interest in the aging brain. Now what a brain network is, it's regions that uh, co-activate together or tend to be in sync with each other uh, for some common purpose. Now the goal with looking at functional brain networks is to study not necessarily how particular brain regions are active or evoked during a cognitive task, but to study how brain regions are coordinated together in their function. So how do they work together as a team, and what is the integrity of uh, sets of regions or networks of regions that we know work together as a team for cognitive operations? How functionally intact is that, is that system? One such system uh, that has been shown to be uh, a sensitive biomarker for cognitive decline, both in healthy aging and with dementia, is called the default mode network. It's often uh, abbreviated as DMN. And importantly, we can measure the integrity of these brain networks while someone is lying quietly in an MRI scanner. So we don't have to present a cognitive task, rather we can have someone lying quietly in a scanner and we can measure their brain activity and how it's fluctuating different regions. And we can use those measurements to measure the integrity of particular brain systems that we know uh, is sensitive to aging and dementia. So as an example here we have Uh, healthy elderly adults and Alzheimer's patients. And the measurement here that we're showing is the integrity of the default mode network while someone is resting quietly in the scanner. And what you uh, want to be uh, noticing here is that in healthy elderly adults, this network includes aspects of the prefrontal cortex, the parietal cortex, the medial parietal cortex, the lateral parietal, and then we have the hippocampus shown here and then the lateral temporal cortex shown over here, and then with Alzheimer's disease, we have a marked reduction in the amount of uh, contribution or the involvement of the hippocampus and the prefrontal cortex in this um, network. Now, this this finding was from Greicius et al. in two thousand and four, and this has been replicated by by several others. Now, the idea that Uh, This particular network, the default mode network, might be a biomarker for someone's risk for conversion to MCI or conversion from MCI to dementia. And importantly, a lot of these studies have started to control for the atrophy that happens in these brain regions. Now to just give a little bit of a a visual depiction of what we're measuring when we're talking about functional connectivity, I wanted to show this, this slide. So here again, functional synchrony of brain networks uh, as measured with fMRI is often measured as just the correlation between the activity of different brain regions. And so we have, if we have this region in green and this region in orange. And we're looking at the, the bold signal, which is our measure of brain activity in these regions using fMRI. If we look at that activity over time in these two regions, we see that they're highly synchronous. They're highly correlated with each other. And when we see such a high correlation between the brain activity of different regions, again, even while someone is just resting quietly in the scanner, you can see this between two regions in the motor system, then we would refer to those regions as functionally connected or or parts of the same functional system. And then as proof of concept that we can see regions that are not highly correlated, we could look at a region in the motor system and the visual system, which are different systems of the brain, and indeed, they do not show a high correlation with each other at rest. So the idea here is that with, uh, with measuring this fMRI signal in the resting state, we can get access to the integrity of, of functional systems in the brain that are also known to be involved in the ability of the brain to respond to uh, stimuli in the environment and the ability for that to happen. So we can, again, extend that same concept to say that if we say that a high correlation between two regions in the same system means that that system has high functional integrity, then we can look at individual variation as a function of age or clinical status and the extent to which different regions in a system that we know should be integrated, the extent to which individuals of different age or fitness levels have greater correlation between regions in the same network. So overall, these studies highlight the potential for this, these resting state networks to serve as biomarkers for the effects of age on the brain and for risk for age-related diseases like Alzheimer's disease. And this is another visual depiction of the network that I refer to as the default mode network. Again, you can see it includes the lateral parietal, lateral temporal, the medial parietal sort of medial prefrontal and dorsal prefrontal and the hippocampal areas and uh, largely these regions have been involved or are thought to be involved with memory and self referential thought uh, and it turns out that the integrity of the synchrony of these regions also uh, predicts uh, likelihood of cognitive decline and uh, progression towards mci and dementia Another network that has been implicated in cognitive decline with aging and risk for different dementias uh, is what we would call the salience network. Now this network includes aspects again of the dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex, the parietal and temporal cortex, the dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex, the insula, so the anterior insula region here, the parietal and temporal areas here, and this dorsal anterior cingulate. These are core regions of the salience network. And this network has been associated with our ability to detect salient information, both either from the external environment or from internal uh, bodily sensations. But it's also been uh, implicated as a network that's important for sort of orchestrating how other networks interact with each other. So uh, this is still ongoing work, but that's a little bit of a preview of of how these networks are thought to be involved with uh, cognitive operations. So again, like I said, these networks are sensitive to the effects of aging. This is the the same illustration that I showed on the last slide showing the regions that are involved in these networks. And then this is a comparison of young and older adults. This is all healthy older adults. And this is showing that young adults tend to have greater functional connectivity or greater synchrony uh, in these regions compared to older adults. And you can see for the default mode network, that the young adults have greater synchrony in almost every region that we have in the network, Okay, so prominently in the prefrontal cortex, the posterior cingulate, and the hippocampus. And then for the salience network, again, young adults have greater functional connectivity in this anterior insula area and uh, the uh, anterior prefrontal cortex. Now, again, this is all serving as reference for what happens for... Uh, individuals that have greater levels of fitness or greater, or, or go into an intervention program where you actually train and improve your levels of fitness. Now this is uh, work that's in preparation for submission, but it replicates a study that we published in 2010 showing that older adults that had greater fitness levels uh, also had greater functional connectivity in these networks that are vulnerable to aging. So here on the uh, y-axis is functional connectivity, again measured as the correlation of the activity in these different brain regions in these particular networks during the resting state. And then we have the different networks that we've measured. Here I'm just showing an example of the default mode network that we've talked about and the salience network that we've talked about. And I'm showing here lower fit and higher fit older adults compared to young college age adults. And then I'm showing... Uh, the network as a whole, and then the core aspects of the network, the the aspects of that network that without which uh, the network wouldn't be itself, that they're the most important aspects of those networks. And so the main point of this slide here is to show that the default mode network and the salience network are sensitive to not only the effects of age, but also that individuals with greater fitness have greater functional connectivity in these regions. This is the default mode network and its greater got greater functional connectivity for the higher fit older adults. And the higher fit are no different than the young adults statistically, whereas the higher fit are greater than the lower fit. And this effect is magnified when we look at the core regions of the default mode network, being this posterior cingulate and the medial prefrontal regions. Again, over in the salience network, we see a slight increase going from lower fit to higher fit to young adults. But in the core regions of the salience network, which includes the anterior insula and the dorsal uh, anterior cingulate, uh, we see that this this trend is magnified such that higher fit have greater levels of functional connectivity. However, in this case, the the higher fit older adults were still had lower functional connectivity than the young adults. Nevertheless, this is good cross-sectional evidence because we've shown a replication in the default mode network and we're extending it now to the salience network the, of the idea that greater levels of fitness are related to greater functional integrity of these of these networks in older adults. Now, follow-up study: we looked at what would happen if we uh, had older adults that were previously inactive uh, complete an exercise training program. What happens to these networks? And we showed similar types of uh, of results. So here, again, I'm showing where the young adults have greater levels of functional connectivity compared to older adults in this default mode network. And then now on the right side, what I'm showing is the functional connectivity levels and how they change as a result of this intervention. Now this is the same intervention that I talked about with the hippocampal finding and the white matter finding. And so this is a one year intervention and we measured at zero, six months and 12 months, the different aspects of structure and function. And here we're looking at functional connectivity for the walking group uh, compared to the stretching group between the hippocampus and this lateral temporal area and the and the default mode network. and we see that the walking group increased their functional connectivity level up to the level of the young, whereas the stretching group had minimal change throughout the intervention. And we also found evidence for this in the other network that I'm referring to as the salience network. So in particular, the functional connectivity between the right and left anterior prefrontal cortices increased uh, over the course of the intervention for the walking group, but it did not change uh, for the stretching group. And then we have the young adults as a reference. So overall, these findings are are positive and encouraging uh, of the idea that greater levels of cardiorespiratory fitness are related to greater functional integrity of these networks that are sensitive to aging and can be predictors of, of cognitive decline and dementia. And that even in your 60s, when you enter a training program that increases cardiorespiratory fitness, the level of functional connectivity can increase uh, even up to the level of young adults from that training. So now let's move on to looking at some of the studies that actually uh, look at the extent to which exercise is protective against the conversion into stages of myocognitive impairment or dementia, or protective in dementia populations after it has already started to develop. So this is, again, I'm gonna start with meta-analyses. So the combination of uh, different studies that are being put together, and the advantage there, again, of meta-analyses is that they are often uh, well-controlled for the quality of the study, so only the best quality studies uh, are in the meta-analysis, allows us uh, to collapse across different studies that might have their different strengths and weaknesses and see overall what do the effects look like. So this is a meta-analysis uh, from 2009, and they looked at 16 prospective studies and found that physical activity was associated with a 28% reduction in dementia risk. And so we can see that there's a number of studies here, and a number of different types of uh, exposures that are measured. So four hours a week, three times a week, uh, two times a week, and three times a week vigorous. Okay, so different frequencies and different intensities that we have. And across all of these studies, uh, the benefit tends to favor uh, physical activity in creating a reduction of the likelihood that somebody will convert into dementia over the course of the time studied. Now, this risk reduction increases when the outcome is more specific to Alzheimer's disease. While there are less studies, we still see that overall it seems to be that uh, even two times a week and three times a week, adding that amount of physical activity to your lifestyle can result in a significant reduction in risk for Alzheimer's disease. Now one thing that's important is that a lot of these studies and their measurement of physical activity have have used self-reported measures. So they'll ask individuals in the study how often they're Uh, are active at different intensity levels, and that will be the measure of of physical activity that's used to predict risk for dementia or Alzheimer's disease. It's important then that these findings have been replicated with objective measures of physical activity as well. So this is an example of a study that objectively measured physical activity using a wrist-worn device like the Fitbit, but this is a research grade, accelerometer, and participants wore this for 10 days. They had a very large sample size, and participants were between 70 and 80 years old, and they were followed for up to five years. And the main result uh, that, that we're highlighting here is the individual differences in risk for Alzheimer's disease based on this activity measurement, this objective measurement, those that were the least active had about twice as much risk for dementia compared to those that were most active. Importantly, in this study, they did look at whether there was the possibility of reverse causation, which is the idea that the cognitive decline itself was causing differences in physical activity, but they did not see evidence for that. Now the studies so far that we've talked about, they're measuring physical activity, which is again a behavior that's a lifestyle behavior. Now something that's often a result from physical activity is greater cardiorespiratory fitness. But again, you can have higher levels of fitness just based on uh, genetic profile as well. But nevertheless, so then this was a study that looked at specifically the predictive value of cardiorespiratory fitness and risk of death related to dementia and they had a 17-year follow-up, and they supported the idea that greater levels of fitness was related to um, pretty significant reduction in one's risk for dying from different types of dementia over this follow-up period. So again, a common measure of, of risk is this hazard ratio, which we can think of as the odds of progressing Uh, at a slower rate compared to a reference group. So here we can think of a hazard ratio of 0.60, for example, as a 40% reduction in the risk of the event in the time measured. Then, for example, a hazard ratio of 0.86 is telling us, uh, in this case, that every increase in MET or every increase in cardiorespiratory fitness at baseline, this was associated with about a 14% reduction in the risk of dying from dementia over this 17-year follow-up period. So again, this supports the idea that cardiorespiratory fitness might be one physiological indicator of how much protection one is getting from the physical activity behaviors in terms of cognitive decline, age-related declines in brain structure and function, and ultimately risk for dementia. This is a meta analytic study looking at the extent to which you can have positive outcomes from physical exercise training even in participants that already have dementia, okay? So is it ever too late? And the gist of their findings is that you still see positive benefits in older adults that have already developed dementia in a number of outcomes as a function of exercise training and the cognitive outcomes, well, they tended to be quite global in this study, the effect size of the benefit of exercise training compared to control is similar to the effect sizes that I showed you earlier uh, seen in healthy individuals. So similar to healthy aging, people have also tried to look at measures of brain structure and function in our individuals that have mild cognitive impairment or dementia to understand how some of these benefits are occurring. And this is a study from 2009 that looked at the association between cardiorespiratory fitness and brain volume in individuals that either had early Alzheimer's disease uh, compared to healthy older adults. And the region is in orange are those that had a positive correlation between cardiorespiratory fitness and either gray matter or white matter. So what we're seeing here is that even in early stages of Alzheimer's, similar to as in healthy aging, we have a positive correlation between cardiorespiratory fitness and gray matter and white matter volume. Uh, And this effect tends to be distributed throughout different areas of the cortex, including the prefrontal cortex and the parietal cortex and the temporal cortex. Spatially, it's more distributed in the early Alzheimer's patients, Uh, this correlation between cardiorespiratory fitness and brain volume. And then with white matter, we can see that in particular, this hippocampal region shown again in the middle temporal lobe, uh, tends to also be sensitive to this association between uh, cardiorespiratory fitness and brain volume. Now, An interesting follow-up analysis here, they focused in on the hippocampus and they looked at both the white matter and the gray matter. And they're showing here the hippocampal volume on the y-axis and individual differences in cardiorespiratory fitness on the x-axis. And you can see that within this range of cardiorespiratory fitness, there's a positive correlation between the level of fitness someone has and the hippocampal volume that they have. Now, what's interesting about this result is that the variation in fitness from about 20 to 40 is similar to the variation in fitness in healthy older adults. Here, this is a study from Erickson et al. 2009 showing again we've got variation, this time even from 13 all the way up to the the higher 30s in VO2. So overall very similar range if we go from 20 to 30s and the correlation is there as well. So this is the correlation between VO2 and hippocampal volume. So in both early Alzheimer's disease as shown here and in healthy older adults, variation in, in this range of fitness tends to be associated with higher levels of uh, hippocampal volume, which again is this brain region that's quite sensitive to the effects of aging and might be a sensitive predictor of conversion to MCI and Alzheimer's disease. So overall, uh, data I've shown you today support the positive effect of physical activity and exercise on the brain and cognition in both healthy aging and dementia populations. Everything from habitual physical activity to exercise behaviors to greater fitness levels has been linked to better cognition and reduced dementia risk in older adults. And we've seen this from different meta-analyses in both healthy aging and those uh, looking at conversion risk to dementia. So when we're thinking about how these effects might occur, MRI has been used quite often to look at at the brain structure and function Of individuals that have different levels of fitness or have been exposed to different levels of physical activity either in their lifetime or through a training program and what we've seen from that data is that brain regions and brain networks that are adversely affected by aging and be and predictive of dementia also show a benefit from greater levels of physical activity exercise and fitness. So it's through these types of studies that we might be able to learn how the benefits of exercise and fitness occur on cognition or reduced risk of dementia. And through that, understanding the mechanism, we might be able to optimize how we apply the treatment or how we make public health recommendations for older adults that are looking to experience more successful cognitive aging. I wanna thank you for your attention And I want to thank the funding sources for a lot of this work. Uh, Much of this work was funded by the National Institutes of Health, and particularly the National Institute on Aging. And I want to thank the labs that had a major contribution to a lot of this work as well, uh, particularly the work that I've been involved in. Uh, The Lifelong Brain and Cognition Lab, directed by Art Kramer at the Beckman Institute at the University of Illinois. Exercise Psychology Lab, directed by Eddie McCauley at the University of Illinois. And then my lab, the Health Brain and Cognition Lab at the University of Iowa. Thank you.